You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. If you got sick in 1860, well, get ready for a spoonful of pale yellow, pungent-tasting liquid. Open wide. Ah. There. (coughs) That is pungent-tasting. Doctors commonly used cod liver oil and other elixirs, and if they didn't work, well, then you might bring on the leeches. That will remove your bad blood. And if that failed to cure you, a doctor might suggest you convalesce at the seaside for a change of air. There weren't many options or real functional medicines for treating infectious disease a century and a half ago because there was no knowledge of what caused them. That wouldn't come until the invention of the microscope and evidence accumulated in support of germ theory. Then, medical science was born. We were learning to cure what ailed us and even prevent it in the first place. And today, the dawn of an era of medical treatment that is just as radical. Your doctor's response to a diagnosis of heart disease, let me write you a prescription for beta blockers, may become, let me inject you with stem cells. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology from where they've been to where they're going. And new technologies and therapies are opening up a frontier where if we can't fix what ails us, well, we'll just replace the parts. But it wasn't always so. Harken back to those days of yore when people said things like, harken back to those days of yore. Infectious disease was a constant, death a daily part of life. In the 19th century, epidemics swept the globe. Cholera, bubonic plague, smallpox, killing hundreds of thousands and even millions. Tuberculosis was a killer as well, but it wasn't epidemic, it was endemic, always present. In the U.S., for example, 25% of mortality came from the disease, but because it kills slowly, half the population was infected and nearly everyone was exposed to the bacteria. Nobody knew that mycobacterium tuberculosis caused this illness, of course, because while today we accept germ theory, back then... No one could imagine that a tiny bug was the cause of such misery. Illness was the result of foul-smelling air or a sign of a weak constitution. And so you can imagine just how earth-shaking germ theory was. It didn't just revolutionize medical science. It was the very birth of medical science, of microscopes, evidence-based knowledge replacing superstition, the development of drugs, antibiotics, and a procedure that seemed bizarre until it was routine— sterilizing instruments before surgery. And like all advancements in science, its progress was ploddingly slow, encumbered by trial and error. But it was not without intrigue. Robert Koch, the scientist who used meticulous experimentation to identify the bacterium that caused TB, suddenly changed his modus operandi. He rushed to develop a cure, and that result was undone by none other than the father of the celebrated sleuth, Sherlock Holmes. The remedy, Robert Koch, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the quest to cure tuberculosis is Thomas Gett's story of this insidious, slow-killing scourge. What happens is the bacteria usually gets into the lungs, and so very slowly, over the course of years and even decades, eats away at the flesh of the lungs. And so you get basically this slow kind of lack of air, lack of energy, this dissipation this is, this is why they called it consumption, because it felt as if you were being, and in fact you were, being consumed from inside. And you point out all the reasons that urban life in the mid-19th century was actually ideal for the spread of tuberculosis. I mean, poor sanitation doesn't really capture it. I mean, there were no sewage systems, human and animal waste filling the rivers, living conditions were crowded. 
and I was interested to read that there was a lot of public spitting. It all sounds pretty gross. Yes. Yeah, so so little did people know that they had created an environment that was perfect for the tuberculosis bacteria. It spreads very efficiently in close quarters. It does not spread very efficiently when people are uh, living in, in rural settings, but in urban situations, as was emerging in the in the 19th century, people living kind of cheek and jowl, families in, living in one room, that is perfect for the spread of TB. The thing about spitting was spitting was, you know, in many ways considered healthy at the time. It was considered a, a way to expectorate and to clean your lungs, to clean your system. So even aside from the for prevalent use of tobacco, spitting was, was considered a, a normal course of human daily behavior. Apparently, the medical establishment was no better. You write that doctors would go directly from working on cadavers in the morgue to delivering babies without so much as running their hands under a tap. Yeah, so that was the work of Semmelweis, who was, was a physician in Vienna, and he observed there were two wards in the hospital. There was a kind of wealthy ward for the wealthy women who were having babies and then for the poor women. And the poor women were attended to by midwives. The wealthy women were attended to by med students. Well, it turns out that the med students were going straight from their autopsies to the birthing rooms and not washing their hands in between because why would they wash their hands? They would wipe them off, but there was no conception of germs. And so the infection rate, the mortality rate of women dying in childbirth and of, of infection afterwards was profoundly higher than the ward for poor people. So Semmelweis basically understood why this connection was was attributable to these kind of profoundly unhygienic practices. And in fact, he was so distrusted and disbelieved based on his scientific conclusion that he ended up being committed to a mental institution and dying of insanity because he could get nobody in the world to believe him about germs. It seems like it's still hard to get people to wash their hands. It is, but at least now we know we should. <laughs> so let's talk about Robert Koch, a yeah. German farmer. And he, at this point, was about to contribute much to the science of medicine by isolating the bacterium for anthrax, which it killed sheep, but it also killed humans. Yeah. And he did this on his farm without, without a laboratory, without any real equipment, and without any prior evidence that this was caused by what we now call a germ. Right. So, so Koch comes along about 40 years after Semmelweis. And the, the reason Koch was important is not only because he made this series of discoveries, starting with the bacteria that caused anthrax and then later the bacteria that caused tuberculosis, but he was very important for the history of science because he came up with the process by which people would actually believe a conclusion. So the whole notion of in vitro science, this kind of process of science in test tubes and in Petri dishes, that was all in many ways created by Koch and his assistants. In fact, the Petri dish was named after one of his assistants. So anthrax was the first great breakthrough that Koch did when he was entirely anonymous, just a, a country doctor who, who had happened to have a microscope. And he lived in an agricultural town. There was a lot of um, anthrax in, in agricultural communities. And he actually sat down and did the hard work, which took him many months over a year, in fact, to actually prove through a series of experiments, a very careful, rigorous series of experiments, such that would be routine today, but at the time was entirely unprecedented. He proved that there was a germ called anthrax that caused disease, and he, that was the first breakthrough. He presented this to the medical establishment. What was their reaction? Well, so some people believed him and some people didn't. And the, the kind of great scions of medical science at the time, Virchow being the most famous one in, in Berlin, thought that this was completely unfounded and that he, he was leaping to conclusions. Other people um, regarded germs as what they called imps of the scientific imagination. So there was a huge controversy inside the medical establishment whether or not germs existed. And to believe in germs in these, in these years from 1850 till about 1880 was to be a radical. By what date would you say that germ theory had triumphed over these other ideas? Right. It was, it was probably Koch's identification of TB in 1881. That discovery, which he demonstrated in March 1882, was really where he laid out to the actual kind of leaders of the scientific establishment in Germany he made his case for the causality of TB as being caused by a bacteria. Briefly, what did he actually show these people to prove to them that a bacterium was causing tuberculosis? Right. The kind of key 
principle that he had established was that of a culture. So I, kind of identifying the bacteria in the blood or in the tissue was the first part. But it was not clear whether the bacteria or those, those little animals that they saw in the microscopes, whether those were the cause of disease or caused by disease, right? So it was a kind of cause and effect question. So what Koch was able to do was to extract those bacteria, culture them in a separate dish, which became the Petri dish, and then re-inject them into other animals and do this time and time and time again from animal to animal to animal to animal, animal to culture, animal to culture. And after all of those, after having 20 or 30 animals in a row come down with a disease, well, that was enough evidence. This bacterium that caused TB, that would have been everywhere, right? I mean, on door handles, and I don't know. Just yeah, about... no, it was, it, was, it was ubiquitous. Okay, so we needed to find a cure. I mean, that was the point, I, I suppose, for most people. Okay, now you've identified the cause, find a cure. Exactly. What was the cure that he found, or at least proposed? Because he, he thought he found one. Right, so he proposed the remedy, which word in German was Heilmittel, which means remedy and, and was a word not often used, but uh, unfortunately, what Koch announced was just that he had a remedy. He wouldn't say what was in it. So this violated the norms of science then as, as it would now. You, you can't say you have a secret remedy. You have to put the evidence on the table. You have to show your data. So unfortunately, when he said that he had this remedy, the world went crazy. This was the biggest disease in the world. So everybody wanted a piece of it. And what it was, in fact, was denatured or dead tuberculosis bacteria in a glycerin um, solution. So it provoked a profound immune reaction. So the body responded to this presence of this infusion of TB bacteria by going into a kind of high fever, uh, vomiting, diarrhea, kind of profound reaction happened. But it wasn't, in fact, curative. Okay. Well, at this point, enter Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, born in Scotland. He had not yet invented his famous uh, detective. Before he became a writer, in fact, he was fascinated with the methodology of science. Was he actually trained in, in science? Yeah, he was a physician. Okay. So, so he, um, Conan Doyle was in many ways a beneficiary of the new scientific medicine that Koch and Pasteur were introducing. So he was able to observe that and herald it in essays. He was an ambitious writer. He had dreams of being a writer, but at that time was just trying to eke out a living being a doctor in a small town. Okay, so here you have the future inventor of Sherlock Holmes. He gets a journalism assignment to go to the World Congress in Berlin and cover Robert Koch's 1890 announcement of his cure for TB. Uh, he goes to the lecture in Berlin. It's so packed he can't get in, right? What, yes. what, what did he do? What he ends up doing is perhaps even better. He gets invited by an American doctor to tour the wards where the remedy is actually being experimented with and is able to look at the charts and after doing that, Conan Doyle is basically able to perform a very impromptu investigation. And that bit of detective work becomes what would be the first debunking of Koch's remedy as ineffective. He was gravely disappointed. He was very sorry that he had to, in some sense, expose one of his heroes. But he felt that it was important for the public to realize that this remedy, this cure, was nothing of the sort. How long did it take before the public got that news? Because I, I can imagine that if you have TB and there's one guy says, I have the cure, and the other guy says, it's snake oil, I'm still going to go for the cure. Exactly. So there was this two months of, of enthusiasm and, and really of fervor where the remedy was being administered all over the world. People were, were literally dying from the administration of this tuberculin. So once the kind of specter of this experiment, what really was the largest human experiment in history up to that time, became evident, immediately the, there was a, a kind of scientific summit that was called in Berlin. Basically, they looked at the data and, and determined that, in fact, this remedy wasn't helping anybody. Thomas, where exactly do you think Koch made his biggest mistake? I mean, he was a, obviously a very promising scientist. His uh, rigor, his methodology, and so forth. What went wrong when he turned his attentions to tuberculosis? Was he just the victim of ego or... Uh, was this a 19th century form of rushing to publish, or just what was it? I think it was. I think it was rushing to publish. I think it was, you know, his own hubris. I think ultimately, Koch's downfall was abandoning the principles, the rigor and methodology that he had established and that had served him so well in the early part of his career. When he saw the opportunity to kind of score a remedy, he put a lot of those principles aside. Well, finally, Thomas, today tuberculosis, TB, it's on the rise again. It's growing increasingly drug-resistant. Do we have a cure that's 100% effective or something like that today? 
Well, there is a cure. There are several cures. There are the antibiotics that were developed really starting with streptomycin in, in the 19, uh, late 1940s, 1950s. Those antibiotics actually cure the disease. They vanquish the disease from the body. Uh, they do what Coke was looking for. The problem now is that we have so overused those antibiotics in just you know, 50, 60 years that they are becoming less and less effective because the bacteria is a wily one. It, it reproduces quickly, it uh, mutates quickly, and it has found ways around the antibiotics. So, so we are now faced with forms of bacteria in MDR, multidrug-resistant, res or XDR, extremely drug-resistant TB, both of which are at times completely able to outwit the antibiotics, and that's very worrisome for people in the TB field. Thomas Getz, thanks so much for being here today. It was my pleasure. It was lots of fun. Thomas Getz is the author of The Remedy, Robert Koch, Arthur Conan Doyle, and The Quest to Cure Tuberculosis. By the way, the Nobel Committee did recognize the important work that Robert Koch had done in identifying the bacterium responsible for TB and gave him the prize in 1905. He also, of course, helped to establish the reality and the importance of germ theory. Well, medicine and medical technology have come a long way from 100 years ago and certainly from 300 years ago. We were, of course, still battling bugs back then, but you might have had a different kind of problem. For example, what if you had a severed or a compromised limb or you needed an amputation? Well, sometimes you got a new part. Prosthetics have a long history, including some ready replacements for wounded renegades on the rough seas hundreds of years ago. Hi. Ahoy, Buccaneer. I see your eye in me collection of pig legs. What can I do you for? Well, my buddies and I were sailing the California coast so that we could steal some gold from ships. We captured one and we got aboard, but as we turned it around, I caught my foot on a small piece of rope, and before I knew it, a guy with a big sword cut my leg off. Hmm, so you and your mates were scourging the Barbary Coast and overhauled a vessel to plunder, aye? Yeah, well, that's right. But as you were about to bring a spring upon her cable, your foot got tangled in a nipper, and a scoundrel slashed you ere you got your wits about you. Exactly. Blimey! Shiver me. Ah, sounds if you were a bit squiffy. No, I wasn't drinking. Anyway, I need a new leg. Hmm, let's see here. This one's on loan for my brother. It's just a stand-in. Uh, Vasti, I have just what you need. Behold this leg, lovely hand-carved pine and lined with sheepskin. What size are you? Well, I'm a 23 regular. All right, try this. Oh, that's nice. Super comfy. The leather cup at the end prevents slipping. But nothing can save the soul of someone who is more landlubber than Buccaneer. Ah. <laughs> My sailing skills are just fine. Now, lad, we all know that a pirate's life is as fickle as the heart of a lovely lass. Ah. So I draw your attention to our sale. We're having a special on replacement parts, 20% off. I suggest you stock up. Hmm, what have you got? Well, to start with, I suggest one of our fine hook arm prosthetics. One loose musket ball is all it takes to reduce two arms to one. Here, this fine leather strap goes over your shoulder. What's remaining of your arm in this sleeve? I recommend the blunt hook over the sharpened one. It's a bit more practical. Uh, especially if your sea legs are untrue. Uh. <laughs> I have sea legs. I'm a good sailor. Scupper that. Me nose tells me you're more suave than sailor. At least I'm not a squiffy. No, you're a... Parrot strangling scallywag. Well, you're a scurvy dog. Bilge Swiller. And sadly, you'll be in need of one of these eventually. It's as true as Starbird is on the right. Glass eyes. Five for a doubloon. Hmm. Can't imagine I'd need more than one of those. In truth, mate, the glass tends to get grimy with salt and wood oil, and then the eye is forever popping out and rolling down the plank. You lose more of these to the sea. I suggest you stock up. Oh, okay. Do you have a bag? A paper or sealskin. And can I throw in a leather patch or a gold tooth? Uh, no, thanks. This'll do. You've been great. All right. Uh, that'll be three doubloons. Oh, well, here you go. Ahoy, by my tally, you are our hundredth customer this month. For that, you get a free Jolly Roger and this sailing ship bumper sticker. Well, thanks. Keep calm and yo-ho-ho. Ho. What does it mean? I don't know exactly. They were booty from an English novelty ship. Well, I'm off. I have a Spanish treasure fleet to pillage. Uh, good luck to ye. Fair winds. Ahoy, you barnacle-bottom scoundrel. 
Goodbye, you grog-snarfing swine. You rotten-timbered blowfish. Weevil-eating pig. A 17th-century sailor wouldn't recognize the materials used in prosthetics today. Coming up, we're in the midst of another medical revolution, one that is as transformative as antibiotics. We'll begin replacing body parts with new ones. It's Replace What Ails You on Big Picture Science. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Throughout most of history, artificial limbs have been heavy and cumbersome, but now manufactured materials, plastics, various metal alloys, and carbon fiber composites allow them to be strong but also light and flexible. With electronics, they become more controllable. And this is where we enter the next revolution of medical innovation, where medicine meets advanced bioengineering. Prosthetic devices interface to computers, well, they can closely mimic everyday tasks such as gripping a handrail or walking down the sidewalk. But biomedical researchers are taking it farther. Imagine having your brain directly control your prosthetic arm through an implanted device, a brain-machine interface, or BMI. You have a replacement part that is part of you. Designing that BMI is the work of neuroscientist and biomedical engineer Jose Carmina at the University of California, Berkeley. But there's more. It's not solely prosthetic limbs that can adopt BMI technology. These implantable devices could take cues from the neurons of paralyzed patients and convert them into movement. One of the leaders in the new field of neuroprosthetics, Dr. Carmina, says that the brain is well-equipped to connect to a robotic arm. The wiring, after all, is already in place. The brain has a remarkable capacity to uh, adapt to novel environments and also to actually adapt to artificial actuators, whether computer cursor or robotic arm, etc., and actually to change the activity of the cells so that it can actually control the device better. You are working in the new field of neuroprosthetics, and I wonder if you could define what that is. We're not just talking about, say, an arm or a limb that replaces one that's been amputated, for example. Yeah, I think the whole field of uh, brain-machine interfaces or uh, neuroprosthetics is to connect brains with machines, in principle motivated to be able to restore sensory, motor, cognitive function that has been lost which basically includes all sort of uh, conditions ranging from uh, paralysis like a spinal cord injury or due to an amputation of the limb, all the way to uh, stroke and also neurodegenerative uh, disorders like ALS, etc. You're, you're trying to restore functionality, but you're not necessarily replacing a limb, although it includes that. Yeah, I mean, you can think of the whole repertoire. Uh, in the case of amputees, the aim of the field is basically to to control in a naturalistic way these prosthetic arms that are being improved through the years, you know, like this kind of uh, arms that will be attached to the remaining limb and uh, it will be able to be controlled and also sensed by the brain. Uh, But you can also think of other devices that will attach to your body uh, more like an assistive device in the case of uh, spinal cord injury or other conditions, and we're talking about exoskeletons, like wearable robots that you will be able to have and control with your brain. Say more about the control with the brain. When we talk about wiring to the brain, can you give us a description? We refer to as the pacemaker uh, of the brain, so some device that will be implanted in the brain and it will last for decades, if not the lifetime of the user. And that this device will be basically uh, very small. It will be capable of sampling or recording activity in the brain in different modalities and uh, also to stimulate cells in the brain. So in that way, it will be bidirectional. We should be able to read out from the brain and be able to write information into the brain. So you can think of it, yeah, like a port uh, that is permanent there and is all wireless and, you know, uh, consumes very little power. Even the most, the movements that some of us would take for granted 
are actually very complicated when you look at the brain and what's going on. So bringing a cup to my lips and taking a drink or washing my face or something like that. In terms of what's happening with the neurons in the brain, that's actually quite sophisticated. Are you saying that you could restore that kind of functionality or give that functionality to someone who had it taken away or who had never had it? And, and how do you do that? Well, there has been tremendous progress in the field, uh, neuroscience in general, and more specifically in, in, in neural engineering, about being able to decode or read out what a population of neurons encodes, right, with respect to, for example, different uh, movements, like you were referring to reaching and grasping a, a mug of coffee, etc. right? So we know to a certain extent how to uh, read out or make sense of this information in the brain. But I will say that perhaps the, the most dramatic advance or one of the most promising advances, I think, in brain machine interfaces is basically exploiting the plastic capabilities of the brain. The fact that the brain can learn new things, uh, the brain can learn to perform new actions. In this case, we are referring to prosthetic actions, actions like controlling a prosthetic device, right? Actions that the brain has never learned to do before. And this plasticity allows or uh, mitigates the lack of uh, knowledge about, in principle, how this brain used to control the native arm before it, get, it got compromised. So it's basically you don't need to have a perfect model of the brain or of the motor areas of the brain to control a prosthetic device. The brain can learn new ways of how to control them. So you're saying that you don't have to program everything into these devices, that the brain in some ways will incorporate the device and figure out what to do with it on its own? That's right. Uh, of course, you know, we're not saying that that's how it should be done, like put all the, leave all the pressure to the brain to learn uh, how to control these devices. This kind of like this sweet spot between this uh, natural learning uh, with machine learning, meaning the device can also adapt, can also try to understand what the brain is doing and, and this co-adaptation of this learning between the brain and the machine, we think that it can actually achieve uh, much better results in the sense like, you know, faster learning and boost performance and robust control. Well, Jose, I'm wondering why you got into this or if there was a personal motivation through experience with family or friends with limited mobility or paralysis, if personal experience at all is fueling some of your work. Not necessarily in terms of a family relative of a friend, but it was really, a, you know, when I was in grad school, I was at that time working on AI and robotics, and uh, and I really was missing something, like maybe because many members of my family are physicians, I decided I wanted to do something on more oriented towards, you know, helping human beings. And um, in a way, I, I saw BMI as a field that included all what I have learned to that time, like electrical engineering, AI, robotics, but and all the things I wanted to learn, I was very interested about like uh, uh, real brains, you know, how the brain works. So I thought like this was the, the perfect area that combines all of these areas and has a very clear uh, clinical uh, application. Jose Carmina, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Jose Carmina is a neuroscientist and biomedical engineer at the University of California, Berkeley, and co-director of the Berkeley UCSF Center for Neural Engineering and Prosthesis. Fifteen years ago, stem cells were first isolated in a lab and to considerable fanfare. These cells are the blank slates of biology, and they can turn into every other kind of cell in the body, blood, brain, heart cells. By the late 1990s, we were giddy with the promise of stem cell therapy. Like antibiotics, they seemed to be a potential cure-all. Stem cells offered the hope of actual regeneration, of growing new tissue, new organs. There was even talk that the end of disease was near. So what happened? Where the heck are stem cells now? Well, coaxing them into viable therapies has been less straightforward than hoped as most things are, and it's been hampered by years of restrictions in funding and debate over the ethics of using embryonic stem cells. But the research into stem cells has continued, and its promise to yield real cures remains, says William Murphy. He's a bioengineer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where stem cells were first famously isolated. In a recent breakthrough, researchers there have used stem cells to grow white and red blood cells. Now, there are different kinds of stem cells. Embryonic stem cells are pluripotent. They can become any cell in the body. 
adult-derived stem cells may be limited as to which cell types they can become. And then there are induced pluripotent stem cells. These are adult cells that have been genetically reprogrammed to be embryonic stem cells. So, Bill, my understanding of stem cells is that they're kind of a, uh, I don't know, zero-order cell for the body. That is to say, stem cells have the capability, they are pluripotent, which means they're multiply powerful, that they can turn into just about any cell in the body. And that sounds terrific if you need to fix something. That's absolutely right. It's in some ways dependent on the stem cell type that you're talking about. There are adult-derived stem cell types that have a bit more limited potential, and there are embryonic stem cell types that are pluripotent and therefore have the potential to become all of the cell types that are present in the adult human body. Uh, so they really are this sort of blank slate cell type that's capable of generating all of our tissues. I think it was at the University of Wisconsin that uh, researchers were recently able to turn stem cells into both red and white blood cells. How do you do that? Well, you know, the, the protocols that are used to differentiate stem cell types, differentiate meaning that you start with this pluripotent cell type and you generate a much more specialized adult cell type, these protocols oftentimes mimic what happens during development of humans. So we expose these cells to the types of molecules uh, that are present as they develop into the tissue type of interest. In the case of blood, for example, we might study how the blood develops during early development, which molecules are present and exactly when and in what quantities. And we may then use that as sort of a blueprint to differentiate embryonic stem cells into red and white blood cells. Another way that one might do it is sort of from the inside out, identify the genes or the sort of genetic profiles that are required to generate blood cells and then essentially rewire the cells so that they become blood cells directly. These red and white blood cells that you're trying to make, I mean, these are intended eventually to be useful for treating people who have a condition where they don't have enough of these cells, I assume. That's right. So there's the possibility of thinking about these as therapeutic cell types. And of course, what makes the, the most recent advances in stem cell research attractive is that one can now generate induced pluripotent stem cells from a patient. So if one needs to generate red and white blood cells for a blood transfusion, for example, one could take a cell from that patient, reprogram it into a pluripotent cell type, and then that reprogrammed cell creates a feedstock for differentiated cells like blood. Now, if you're making blood cells, I can understand what you would do with them if you were using them for therapy. You just put them in a bottle and then squirt them into the patient. But in general, do you, you swallow these stem cells? Do you inject them? Do you, do you build something in the lab with them as you were doing with the blood cells? I mean, how, how does it work in general? There really are a variety of different ways that stem cells can be used. So you could imagine infusing stem cells in some cases directly into the bloodstream and having them home to a site that's injured or diseased. That's one scenario that people have been exploring. Another, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, is generating a scaffolding that can be used as a carrier for stem cells. And the scaffolding might serve a similar purpose to scaffolding as you're building a, a building. It essentially creates a physical structure that allows for the cells to be carried in, into the body and then also might, in, might include some of the instructions that are necessary to induce these cells to create a tissue type of interest. Maybe one example would be bone. You might have a large bone defect due to trauma or congenital defects or cancer that might require a large amount of bone to be formed. Well, we can take stem cells that are capable of forming bone and deliver them on, upon a physical scaffolding that carries the cells in and instructs them to form bone. Okay, so you're building them outside the patient and putting them in. That's right. Yeah, and in some cases, we're developing the system such that the cells can simply be seated onto the scaffolding, placed inside the body, and the instructions are there so that they can build themselves once they're incorporated into the body. I'm sure it's no surprise to you, Bill, that there's been an ongoing debate about the ethics of using embryonic stem cells, at least. Where do most of the stem cells that are used in research today, where are they coming from? Are they embryonic still, or are they coming from the skin or some, someplace else? Well, I think on the side of the clinical trials that are ongoing, one could argue that the majority of the cell types that are being used are adult-derived. So they might be stem cells that are taken from adult bone marrow, 
from adult adipose tissue or from adult blood. And those are used oftentimes because the regulatory framework uh, is less challenging than it might be for a pluripotent embryonic stem cell type. On the research side, we're really exploring all of these different scenarios, the human embryonic stem cells, as well as the induced pluripotent stem cells. And it's important to recognize that we don't yet know which of these cell types is likely to be most effective clinically. The reality is that because we haven't had a large number of clinical trials with embryonic stem cell-derived cells or induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cells, we don't know what the winning uh, scenario is going to be. In principle, the induced pluripotent stem cells are advantageous, not just because they raise less of an ethical concern, but also because they can be patient-derived. So there are intrinsic advantages of those cells, but of course, that's only true if they end up working. Well, this may only be the predilections of the media, but of course we hear stories that are jarring. For example, one recently, a woman in Portugal, a quadriplegic, had experimental stem cell therapy and discovered after feeling pain at the site of the implant that there was a nose growing on her spine. They, they removed that, but this is the sort of case that will obviously make people feel queasy about stem cell therapy. How do you put that sort of a report in perspective? Is it just an aberrant case? Uh, or is it uh, something that you know happens too frequently? Or what does it tell you? Anything? Well, I guess I would say that it's an aberrant case, but I think it also points out that with the great potential of these cells comes great risk for negative outcomes and side effects associated with the therapy. And really what it indicates is a need for us to create a more well-defined uh, regulatory framework for development of these cells, for qualification of cells before they're implanted or injected into a patient so that we understand what the cell sources are that we're putting into a patient and what their potential is, uh, and that the manufacturing processes for generating these cells are well-defined and really robust. Uh, so that in essence, when we inject a stem cell-derived cell population into the spine of a patient, we know that they're going to generate the nervous tissue that we're interested in, for example, and are not capable of differentiating into cartilage in the nose or something similar. Well, finally, Bill, kind of blue skying here, but do you see a day when we could just continually regenerate new parts? I could, in principle, keep my car going indefinitely. Will stem cells eventually give us the ability to go indefinitely? Well, it's, it's obviously a difficult thing to predict. Stem cells Ultimately, once we differentiate them into more mature cell types, more specialized cell types, they still age. And so the ability to continuously regenerate, we certainly haven't mastered. One place on the research side that's becoming quite fruitful uh, related to your question is understanding organisms that can regenerate, like salamanders, for example, that are capable of continuously regenerating their limbs. If we understand the mechanisms by which a salamander does so and what the differences are, fundamental differences between, say, a salamander and a human, then perhaps we can recreate those kinds of processes in a human and get continuous regeneration. But as you say, it's a blue sky goal, and it's probably quite far in the future. As usual, I was born two generations too soon. <laughs> Bill Murphy, thank you so very much for talking with us. That's my pleasure. William Murphy is a bioengineer, and he's co-director of the Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine Center at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Well, that's really a couple of interesting stories on the frontiers of regeneration. I mean, you have these stem cells that have the incredible promise to make parts inside you, within you. And then we're also talking about harnessing the power of the brain. I mean, imagine hooking it up to a synthetic prosthetic device and having the two talk to each other. Yeah, these definitely are technologies without any precedent. Well, we may need to be patient with some of these technologies, too. As we've heard, it may take a while before we can grow new organs with stem cells. So could we print them in the meantime? A breakthrough in 3D printing next. Replace what ails you on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy 
to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We've been hearing that medical science is changing. In the future, we may opt to cure diseased or malfunctioning body parts by replacing them. And there's yet another technology for this on the horizon. Instead of your doctor saying, hey, let me write you a prescription, you may hear... There's attempts at trying to 3D print skin, liver, components of the lung and bone and variety of other things. So this is a very active field. You heard that right, to bioprint blood vessels. His team has made a breakthrough in 3D printing. And you may have been introduced to this technology as we were on Big Picture Science when we observed a woman using it to print shoes. Well, printing a human organ is a far cry from printing a pair of sneakers. Dr. Kadam Hosseini's team has successfully created a human vascular system, that is, arteries and veins, for transporting blood to cells. And they did it with a 3D printer. What it does is that it's just like a printer, but now you can actually design your shape of your architecture of the final material and start printing it in a three dimension. So what we can do with this technology is actually try to not only just print materials, but start printing biological structures like cells and matrix material to be able to generate three dimensional structures. Well, I have seen 3D printers, and they're mostly used, at least the ones I've seen, to make, uh, you know, I don't know, keychain tchotchkes or stuff like that. They're little 3D objects that are built up layer by layer. It's like uh, the object had been sliced like a salami vertically, and it just builds them up one at a time. Are you doing essentially the same thing? More or less, we are doing a very similar process, but instead of using powders and other kinds of materials that have been developed for 3D printing of, let's say, a keychain, what we're doing is we're actually printing more biological materials, which typically are made from things that are like jello. Um, they're very hydrated polymers. And what they, the need of these 3D printers to print those kinds of materials are different. So we have to actually modify these printers so that they can print the types of materials that would be okay for biological things. Okay. So you're not using some sort of I don't know, plastic or something to print with. You're using squishy stuff, but is that stuff alive? Is it protoplasm or is it, uh, you say, jello? I mean, is, is it just a gelatin dessert? What is the ink? So the ink is actually, you can make it from a number of different materials depending on what kind of tissues and what kind of biological processes you're trying to mimic. So for our case, we're trying to make tissues that are basically for transplantation and human tissue. So we actually use the ink that is made from the same kind of materials that make our body. So they would be things like polymers that are found in the, our own body and make our own material outside the cells. And we can actually combine these with cells and we can actually even print cells directly using these kinds of uh, printers. You can actually print cells. I mean, cells are very complex things. I mean, they've got all these little parts, the inclusions in the nucleus and all the things you see in the diagrams in a biology book. How, how in the world can you print one of those? Well, it's not super trivial, but basically what we can do is that we can have these cells be in the ink, be in the environment of this hydrated jello-like material, so they get protected when we print them. So it's not that they go through and get exposed to high temperatures and high shear rates. They actually get protected in this gooey environment, and when we print them, they remain alive. So you have a bottle filled with, I don't know, loose cells, and you can squirt that through the nozzle of the printer. More or less, that's right. So in other words, the ink already has living cells in it. You're not trying to build them up from simpler parts. That's correct. So we can actually take cells from existing sources, whether that would be cells that are coming from the same patient that we're trying to make the tissue for, or cells from other sources that would be compatible with the patient. We can take those cells, we can put it in the biological glue, and then be able to print it. So this is how we would print the cells and 
um, the material together to get three-dimensional structures. The blood vessels that you're printing, however, th those are not made from cells. Those are made from some other material. That's correct. So to be able to make three-dimensional structures, there's two ways one can go about making tissues. One is you do exactly what I just said, which is you print cells and materials, and you control the architecture of this, how this 3D structure is formed. The other way is actually a, a different way where you actually start by printing in the porosity, the so-called blood vessels, interior space that are found in the tissue. So you can print those and they, they would be from a material that wouldn't have cells, but they would be a material that you can first generate a three-dimensional structure. And then you can pour your cells around this material. And, and once the cells are kind of remodeled themselves, you can get rid of this original template to generate the, the shape of the interior of these blood vessels. So it's a different process from printing the cells, where in this case, you're actually printing the, the, the void space inside the tissue, and then you get rid of it to generate um, the holes that are inside the blood vessels. It, this sounds like the techniques used to make uh, cast metal objects or something like that. I mean, you're essentially printing a scaffold, and then you pour cells over it, and they adhere to the scaffold, and eventually you get rid of the scaffolding, and you've got, you've got your vasculature. Exactly. And uh, what this requires is that you have a very good understanding of what, how you can make this structure, make the scaffold, and how you can remove it without destroying the cells and the structure of the tissue. And at the end, because we make them into uh, from materials that are jello-like, the whole thing feels like pretty much jello, but it's got a lot of architecture inside it. So if you flow liquid, it actually, the liquid goes through these channels that uh, have the blood vessel-like structure. We've talked about printing uh, vasculature, but what about printing uh, organs? Have you done any of that? So we and other people in the field are doing a lot of work in trying to print different types of tissues. There's a lot of work in trying to print, let's say, uh, scaffolds that can be used as replacements of, um, let's say, different parts, like things like that can be used for windpipes. There's actually bioprinted, 3D printed windpipes that are now uh, being pushed um, in clinically on, on humans. There's attempts at trying to 3D print skin, 3D print liver, 3D print components of the lung and bone and variety of other things. So there's a, this is a very active field. And I think that really the big reason why a lot of people are interested in it is the problems are so huge and the medical need is so great. So, Ali, is there any possibility for printing something like hands and feet, uh, extremities? Well, at this point, we can definitely print structures that would potentially mimic the shape of these um, different components. But I think to really make a functional, let's say, a finger, it's not just even the muscle cells or even the bone cells. You really need the, the nerve cells and everything, and for everything to connect properly to the rest of the tissue. And these so-called composite organs, which are made from many different types of tissues, I think are definitely things that we have to work on in the future. I think we're still a little bit uh, ways away from that. If I were in the stem cell business, would I regard you guys as a major competition? I mean, what's the uh, advantage of printing something as opposed to putting in some stem cells and have them regenerated in the body? So actually, the way I think about this whole field is that we are very much working together. Of course, um, if any therapeutic works by itself, then it's great. But I don't think either stem cells by themselves or a 3D printed architecture by itself is going to really uh, make an impact. I think it's the combination of different approaches because even in 3D printed structures, you ideally want to have the right cells that are compatible with the person, and that's where having the right stem cells will come in. And if you have the right stem cells, a lot of times by directly injecting stem cells, you may not re recapitulate the, all the architectural complexity that the body has. So you may need a scaffold of sorts that helps these cells function the right way and organize into a proper forming tissue. So I think these two fields are actually very synergistic and um, there's a lot of back and forth crosstalk between us and the stem cell biologists in making them work together. Well, looking at it as a whole then, this is a completely new approach, isn't it, to fixing what's wrong with us? I mean, we can put in an artificial joint somewhere, but, you know, that's metal or plastic. You're making parts that that are, if you will, original equipment manufacturer stuff, OEM, biological parts. That's right. So 
what we and other people in the field think is that the best way to treat a patient is not to give them uh, necessarily just a drug that they need to take for the rest of their life or an implanted material that's never going to go away and it's going to remain there. So what we think is that the best way to treat diseases like, let's say, things like diabetes or, or heart cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, things like that, is actually to replace the damaged tissue with a functioning tissue that can be functional for the rest of the patient's life and not necessarily have a therapy that's not going to be long-term and it's going to have a lot of future costs associated with it, with um, taking out implants, putting new ones, or having a long-term need to take drugs. So I think this area of regenerative medicine is not only uh, very futuristic in the functional effects of being able to treat diseases properly, but also it's going to, down the road, potentially reduce the costs of recurrences, hospital days, and other things that are really becoming a big issue in the U.S. healthcare system. Ali Karam Hosseini, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Seth. This is uh, super fun. Ali Karam Hosseini is a bioengineer at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Well, we've come to the end of the show, and what we've heard is incredibly intriguing. The thing is that up until roughly 150 years ago, if you got sick, well, there really wasn't much you could do. There were doctors, yes. Every culture had doctors, but they really couldn't do very much for you. But then beginning 150 years ago, mostly in Europe, medicine became a science. And suddenly we understood why we were getting sick, and that allowed us these great triumphs at the end of the 19th century, vaccination and antibiotics. And it forever changed our approach to medicine and, and treating disease. Yes, we could treat a lot of things, but we still couldn't really replace body parts. I mean, you know, with a wood lathe, you could make a peg leg, but you couldn't really replace parts. Now we're on the verge of new therapies that could be as transformative as germ theory was and what came out of germ theory 150 years ago. We're talking about replacing body parts with prosthetics and uh, implantable devices, perhaps growing new body parts or printing them with a 3D printer. I would really like to have the perspective of 50 or 100 years from now to look back on this year and say, you know, that was the beginning. Well, what if we could keep regenerating your parts on and on and on. Would you like to stick around for on and on and on? Yeah, well, what happens if my brain runs out of room? Then it might not be so interesting. No, we'll regenerate your brain, too. Oh, a whole new me. <laughs> your ears have been attuned to replace what ails you. If you would like to hear this episode again or swap it with another one, why not browse the Big Picture Science archive at our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer to replace it with over-the-air radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and uh, do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Or would you like to make my mom happy by sending some praise? Well, write us at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. One-eyed, bow-legged sea dog. You worm-riddled rapscallion. Box-faced milkmaid. Lice-infested monkey. Ah, harbor hog. Scappy. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.